1: Welcome to Political Rewind. That uh, chanting you're hearing is coming from some of the thousands of demonstrators protesting the war in Vietnam, among other things, who descended on the city of Chicago in 1968 when the Democratic National Committee brought its nominating convention to Chicago, ostensibly to nominate Hubert Humphrey as their candidate for president. Uh, But as many, many people know... Uh, The convention uh, devolved into chaos both in the International Amphitheater on the south side of Chicago where the convention took place and on the street as police uh, attacked, beat protesters. Um, It was later called a police riot by the commission that studied what happened in Chicago. And within the convention all itself, uh, there was some violence. There were tremendous fights among delegates and other officials Um, that broke out uh, over seating of delegates, over whether or not Gene McCarthy should have a bigger role. He was, of course, had been a candidate for the White House as well. It all was one of the most extraordinary and troubling uh, political conventions, I think it's safe to say, in the history of the United States. We're going to talk about that today with uh, Professor Heather Hendershot. She's a professor of film and media at MIT. Her book is When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarization of America. And Heather Hendershot, first of all, thank you so much for being here. I want to say that the reason I knew about your book was uh, not long ago, the New Yorker selected it as a book that they felt we should all be uh, reading. So welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me.
1: I, if you don't mind, I'm going to start this um, before the convention, and for personal reasons that that I'll explain. Um, I am a Chicagoan, as most listeners to the show know. When the convention came to Chicago, I was 21 years old, but in April of 1968, there was a peace march in Chicago, and that's where I want to start, because... I wondered as I was reading your book whether, in fact, you would have been aware of and made note of that peace march. And you did. You say, in April, the Chicago police had beaten 6,000 local peace protesters at a march in broad daylight, and this was a march for which a permit had been granted. Chicago Daily News columnist, the great Mike Rico reported that those protesters did not taunt the police. They were not hippies. They were, in fact, predominantly white, all ages, middle and upper class, orderly, relaxed and cheerful. And yet they were maced, dragged, beaten and arrested. Heather, the reason I mention it is I was one of those marchers. And it was clear to us on that day. (laughs) Uh It was clear to us on that day that this was Mayor Richard J. Daley's message to the protesters who planned to come to Chicago in August. Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the real standout moments in that Mike Royko book, Boss, which is the all-time great book about Mayor Daley's regime, from <laughs> you know from like <laughs> fifty-five to seventy-five or seventy-six. Um, and he sees it as a kind of a warm-up for Chicago, and so do the police. And you're absolutely right to emphasize that these were peaceful protesters. They had a permit for their protest. You know, there's six thousand of them. That's that's a quite a lot. And just to give. <laughs> A little uh, context for it. The, ultimately, the protesters in the streets in the convention. A few months later, there were ten thousand. Right. Mm-hmm. So this was a pretty major warm up to go after this this crowd of of peaceful protesters in, as you noted, broad daylight and just take them down.
1: Yeah, it was a beautiful spring uh, Saturday afternoon. I want to point out I was not arrested. I was not hit. I ran away, <laughs> and I'm really kind of glad Good for you. that I did. <laughs> but uh, let, let's do this. Let, let's move forward uh, to uh, August and the events around the convention, which you write about in such great detail. You take us through almost hour by hour every day of the convention, um, uh, preced- days preceding the convention and then the aftermath Um, but let's start with, I think, what is one of the main theses of your book. You say it is network TV coverage of that convention and the fallout from it that perhaps best illuminate how accusations of liberal media bias took root in the national political consciousness. Talk about that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. um. Before the convention in Chicago, the idea that the mainstream news media, especially TV, suffered from some kind of liberal media, you know, liberal bias, that notion was – Seen as something typical of extremists, uh, people uh, on the far right or people on the somewhat more legitimate but still right wing, like William F. Buckley Jr., believe that, you know. Um, and it was seen as a regional complaint. In other words, people in the South, people who were pro segregation, objected to network news coverage of the civil rights movement and said it was biased. But most people understood the news as fairly neutral, objective, and balanced, and they, they might make mistakes occasionally because they were human, but all of their professional norms of the, the, the men at CBS and NBC, uh, you know, who were anchors, their professional norms were all geared towards balance and objectivity. And after the convention during really because people were sending in telegrams and calling the 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 networks and complaining during the convention so during and after that public attitude shifted and it was aided in that shift by Mayor Daley being so angry about the coverage that he kept the story alive for months and months uh, after the election and the idea that the media had wronged him and he just kept at it and it ultimately uh, I'm sure this I don't think this was his intention but it helped Hubert Humphrey lose Um, and the other thing that kept that story of liberal bias alive was Nixon who tapped right into it and then just ran with it while he was president and he used Spiro T. Agnew, his vice president, to promote the idea. And, of course, he his sort of crutch in a way during Watergate was to say the problem's not me and the Watergate break and the problem is media coverage of it. Um, so it's a tipping point. But then Nixon and Daley help it really uh, to switch metaphors, take root, you know, as a, a seed and kind of grow.
1: For, for those who may, who may not have been alive and may not understand what the uh, news media ecosystem looked like back then, TV, uh, we're talking essentially about three network news broadcasts, really two. ABC was not much of a player. So at CBS, you had Walter Cronkite, who uh, uh, hosted every night, anchored the evening news, and at NBC... You had uh, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley uh, at night, who hosted nightly news. Certainly, Walter Cronkite, <clears throat> excuse me, and Chet Huntley, I think, were perceived as relatively straightforward and fair-minded. David Brinkley, he was kind of a smart, smart gas in a good way. In a lot of ways, he may <laughs> have been thought of as a little bit more uh, prejudiced, one way or the other. But but the more important point is these were the these were the totems of nightly television news, yes?
0: Absolutely. And uh, I'd like that you reference David Brinkley as kind of a smart ass. That was, uh, that's a quotation from Nixon, right? He thought he was, oh no, LBJ. LBJ thought he was kind of a smart ass. So they were friendly uh, earlier. And then as LBJ was president for a few years, he didn't like the coverage. And Huntley and Brinkley had this kind of banter, a little routine back and forth. And uh, Huntley was the serious guy and David Brinkley was this sort of little bit more jokey a uh, fun guy. And uh Cronkite, of course, was all sort of gravitas. And his nickname was Uncle Walter. You know, that's like pointed to how trustworthy he was. Some people described him as the most trusted man in America, you know, and public opinion surveys always found him extremely pop, you know, popular and, and trustworthy. So it's a really for people, as you said, who weren't even You know born back then it's such a different environment to have three networks only no social media uh no you know handheld uh cameras in your phones no you know phones were a crisis that's a whole separate story in chicago because people didn't own their own phones and carry them in their pockets so as a media ecology it's just completely different than what we have today
1: so um with that context um Let's talk about what happened in Chicago. And, and let me add this to the mix. Um, people like Walter Cronkite, Huntley, and Brinkley had certainly uh, at anchored coverage from their reporters of demonstrations in the South, civil rights demonstrations, horrible uh, demonstrations in which police beat civil rights marchers marching uh, with Dr. King and others. And, and yet, even though they showed a lot of that footage, Uh, As you point out in the book, that did not lead to accusations of bias. The turning point came when people saw images, and we'll talk about why this was happening, of white young people being beaten by cops in the streets of Chicago. That, I think, is really an important part of all this.
0: Yeah, it's a... It's so tragic to think that people had, uh, you know, white middle class Americans had sort of grown accustomed to seeing uh, violence against people of color in the streets, not only during the cover, so coverage of civil rights, but during all the urban uprisings of those years, you know, in Watts, in Detroit, there's something like a hundred cities that have uprisings after King is assassination, assassinated in April 68. And there's a kind of, they're getting used to seeing police beating black people in the street. Um, and there's a whole kind of conservative law and order mentality that Nixon is tapping into. Um, and then they see the white college, you know, anti-war protesters being beaten and they react in this very different way. And they react with anger and dis- and kind of despair that the network news is showing police beating kids and calling them kids, not calling them terrorists or communists, not blaming them, not saying that they did things uh, that made them deserve to be beaten by provoking the police. Um, And uh, the racial dynamics in Chicago are so important. People forget that that's important then because it was such a white crowd. And so they separated out from some of the racial issues of that time. Um, and basically a lot of uh, local black activists just stayed away because they knew they were in greater danger than the white protesters. If, if someone was gonna get killed, it was gonna be the black protesters. And the local black politically active folks, many of them, if they could leave town, they left town. Uh, if they couldn't leave town, they would hide out in a friend's basement, you know, to just avoid the scene. Um, but I think that the racial issue was still important in the street. And it was also important in the convention hall itself, which is something I hope we can get a chance to. Talk about,
1: yeah. Oh, we definitely will. Um, so again, let me let me set the stage about for all of this. Uh, Richard J. Daley ruled Chicago with an iron fist. Um, he had no interest in anyone who objected to anything uh, that um, that he uh, was doing as the mayor of Chicago. I actually am old enough that I the last couple of years of Daley's regime, I was a uh, uh, in Chicago working in a news organization and saw that. Uh, firsthand. But but so when the convention, he wanted the convention in Chicago. He wanted to be the kingmaker who made Hubert Humphrey the nominee of the Democratic Party. The convention held in the International Amphitheater, as you uh, point out so well in your book, uh, on the south side, near south side, in, in Daly's neighborhood, Bridgeport, right up against the Chicago Stockyards. So as oh, people like yeah. me can recall,
0: the, stench was unbelievable.
1: the smell, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. All right, so so the convention itself was isolated. Um, Daly was furious about the idea that all of these protesters he knew were gonna descend upon the city, and he made it clear to his police force, we're not gonna tolerate uh, any kind of um, uh, activity that puts a mar on the city of Chicago which opened the door for them to beat people left and right, not just protesters, but news people as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... uh... It was just a given that they were going to beat people and and suppress them. Uh, one of Daley's motivations, gearing up to the convention, was he assumed there was going to be what he would have called a race riot, because in April, after King was assassinated, things went very badly in Chicago. Uh, uh, there was something like nine million dollars in in damage in sixty-eight money, right? A lot of buildings, nine people killed, buildings burned, two hundred buildings burned to the ground, right? And so he assumed that there would be some kind of riot along those lines. So he, and that's not what happened. He was ready for that. He called in the National Guard before the thing even started. Usually you call the National Guard after there's a crisis or, you know, as it accelerates. So he had police, National Guard, you had uh, Secret Service there, you had Mm -hmm. agent provocateur mixed in with the crowd, right, trying to, you know, make things happen as as, as sort of bad guys uh, operating in bad faith. And ultimately, there were 10,000 protesters and 18,000 so-called security forces. So two to one. And so the setup was inevitable for a kind of violent showdown of of the police really going and the National Guard and everyone with not only with uh, nightsticks, but tear gas. The tear gas situation was unbelievable.
1: Um, We should point out that, of course, the coverage the, the of the what was happening in the streets was hampered by the fact that um that the networks there was a telecommunications strike supposedly um yeah. that prevented <laughs> the networks from getting their uh, their video their film on the air as quickly as they possibly could uh, daily put all sorts of obstacles in the way of communications for uh reporters um pay phones that didn't work properly and the like. Um, So what we have to say is when I think when network producers and executives first saw footage coming in from the streets, they were a little cautious about how much they should put on the air. It wasn't until later that the tide turned on that. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Okay, so the uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers is on strike, so that means basically they can't install enough telephones for the convention. Part of live telephone hookups is what you need to do live TV coverage in the streets. And Daly was very happy with this, and we don't have exact direct documentary proof, but Everyone in the news business assumed that he was behind this strike, strike not being resolved, right? And in fact, the strike is resolved literally an hour or two after Hubert Humphrey's nomination is assured. And Cronkite is actually snarky, which was weird for him on TV. He goes, "By the most amazing coincidence, the strike has just been resolved because he knows the strike is related to them not having the live street coverage," and it's uh, it's just absolutely shocking. So you know they're out. The street uh with a 16 millimeter camera they got to take the footage motorcycle it really fast to the convention center develop it in a trailer where they have chemical vats uh edit it and finally get it on the air like maybe three hours after it happens um so uh the, that does limit the amount of violent coverage that they're showing but i also think just to uh uh be clear that, you know, the networks did make some mistakes in a sense that they undercovered the violence out of a sense of fairness to Chicago and fairness to the police that they, it was their kind of yes. professional norms. Right. And so they thought, well, we don't want to make sure we don't want to go out of our way to make Chicago look bad. And they finally covered that street violence when it was unequivocally a news story that could not be avoided. And this is crazy uh, that afterwards, there's an FCC investigation, which finds that the network news was fair, basically, but it forced NBC to go through all, literally all of its coverage that was on the air mm-hmm. and catalog it and figure out how much was street violence. And what NBC found was that 3% of their coverage had shown violence in the streets. CBS was a little closer to 5 so this is a very small amount but you know in contemporary parlance this sort this footage went viral we would say now, right? It was repeated on on local news across the country. It was images were shown in newspapers and magazines, so more people saw it. And, and keep in mind that a lot of this stuff was originally aired at like one, two, three in the morning, and yet people still saw it. But it's a relatively small amount. So it, you know, people attacking the news for bias, I'm like, seriously, three to five percent of their coverage, um, they really underplayed the story until it was unavoidable.
1: Um, I suspect that probably some of the network executives, and I recognize there's a certain amount of speculation in this, um, viewed the hippies, the yippies, some of the other protesters in the streets uh, the way my dad did. Um, What the heck are these kids all about? These are troublemakers. Their hair is too long. They're dirty. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I think, number one, that when the networks did start showing footage, many viewers were outraged because they thought these young people were disgusting. Um, But I would assume that initially some of the network folks had the same opinion and were a little cautious about it too.
0: Yeah, you know, the you're right that a lot of people in the audience were already very negative about, you know, hippies and they called them long hairs and you know, anyone with a beard was suspect and this kind of thing. Um, from what I can tell, I think the the network news people were mm. a little more circumspect and uh okay. had a kind of general empathy for the underdog uh to put it broadly, oh, okay. you know, in the kinds of coverage they did of stories. And uh, you know, uh I don't know. At a certain point, though, the violence against the kids became so extreme that their, you know, their sympathy really did go towards the, towards the protesters. But there's also another way to, to, to frame this bill. And that is, you know, at a certain moment on the, pinnacle of violence, the so-called Battle of Michigan Avenue on Wednesday night when protesters were beaten in front of the Chicago Hilton. They're chanting, the whole world is watching. That goes on for 17 minutes straight. Um, And it is, as you noted in your introduction, it's called a police riot by the government study later. And one thing that really uh, you sense in Cronkite's coverage at CBS is that they interview some people on the street who are Middle class, very respectable in conventional terms, wearing pearls, and you know, the a man in a suit, and they clearly just come back from from a, a dinner in the theater or something like that, and they're shocked, and they are not, you know, part of the protesters. And Cronkite says, "People of substance in the community are being beaten. Mm-hmm. People of substance are disturbed, and so part of his, uh, uh." Concern comes from like, you know, if you go there as a protester, you know, you might be beaten. You know that you're a protester in the street against Vietnam. Like it, there's a danger. But when regular folks walking down the street start getting beaten up, uh, that starts to freak out uh, Cronkite a little bit.
1: And and I think one of the most important lines in your entire book, which ties what happened in 68 to what happened starting with the Trump administration in uh, 2017, is this statement. It took hmm. four years for American journalists to figure out that both ciderism was boosting the voices of authoritarians in the Trump administration. It took CBS News less than three days to reach a similar conclusion in Chicago. That's a powerful statement, but let me, let me if, if you could, I want to play a quick soundbite um, because news people were being beaten, and we're going to talk a little bit mm-hmm. more about that in a couple minutes, but let's just listen to a brief moment of uh, CBS News uh, cameraman Dell Hall out in the streets of Chicago covering the, uh, the unfolding protest riot, whatever you call it, and the police turned on him. Let's listen to him.
2: Well, I had my camera up, and uh, one policeman gave me a shove, and he's, I don't even think he said anything. He gave me a shove, and I said, CBS News, and he said, whack, right across the head.
1: He went to the hospital for stitches, and that was kind of the beginning for at least the CBS people of recognizing they were not safe.
0: Absolutely. And they, you know, the newsmen at that time didn't want to be the story. They wanted to cover the story and try to keep themselves out of it. But when Dell Hall, who's often seen as like the first news person to be beaten there, um, he gets it in the head. And I've seen the, sh- the live footage or not live because there's no live footage in the street, but the footage they showed. And it's like a switch pan. The camera goes past him really fast. And there's just blood streaming down his face, you know, because they got him on the head. Um, and uh, they also would go after, after journalists, they would go after their cameras and destroy the cameras. Uh, and if you were journalists and you were shooting with a, a camera, you had to turn on a light, um, to, you know, a pretty big light. And those lights became like sort of a bullseye or, you know, like a, a target. And the police would see, know the journalist was there because the light was on and they would break it immediately. Yeah. Um, So uh, you're absolutely right. That line from the book, I think, is really important where they realize, like, you can't just cover both sides. Sometimes one side is clearly in the right and one side is clearly in the wrong.
1: All right. Um, You mentioned before that things that happened inside the hall were very important to um, what the Democratic convention that year led to later. And I want to turn to that in a minute. Uh, I want to talk first when we do that about what happened to Dan Rather one of the most dramatic uh, incidents in the entire Democratic convention. Um, This is Political Rewind. We're talking to MIT professor Heather Hendershot. Her new book is When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarization of America. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. Brother Hendershot set up for us, if you will, the confrontation that became uh, one of the most infamous moments of the entire convention. It involved the Georgia delegation and Dan Rather.
0: Exactly. So. Uh, uh, people who know about the history of Chicago, what happened there, know that Dan Rather got punched on the convention floor and that Walter Cronkite lost his cool for a moment and said, it looks like we got a bunch of thugs down there, Dan. And he felt bad about that because he was supposed to be super neutral. Um, and that's how the story is usually told. And what I tried to do was say, look, let's look at really happened, let's look at the context. And the context was that Dan Rather is interviewing people from Georgia who are very angry and want to do a walkout, and they want to take their uh, uh, stuff standard. with them, you know, the flag, the flag, the standard of Georgia, and he's trying to ask them questions. And the reason they are angry is because Julian Bond from the Georgia State House of Representatives is there, African-American, he's there with a group of alternate, alternate delegates. So Lester Maddox is the governor of Georgia, one of the most famous segregationists in America, like second only to George Wallace. And Lester Maddox, has hand selected all the delegates for the convention which was allowed at that time right every state would choose its delegates in its own way so you know in mississippi they would vote except that they might not tell uh black people the right address where the voting was they would g- find ways to cheat and to dis- you know disenfranchise people um in georgia you could legally be the governor and pick everyone to be your delegate and so Julian Bond shows up with an alternate de- delegation. And says this is not fair. You have virtually an all-white delegation. The the, the few blacks in that delegation from Georgia that Lester Maddox shows were you know tokens. Um, and there's a big vote. And Julian Bond partially wins. What happens is he gets seated with the Maddox delegates. Uh, and instead of the delegates from the original ones getting thrown out, they share a vote. They each get, you know, they each get like half a vote instead of a full vote. And people just erupt because people who want Bond to be seated want him to totally win. And people who want Georgia to win want, you know, the Bond delegates thrown out. And it's just chaos. That is the context in which Rather is slugged,
1: right? And why don't we listen? To how it played out on CBS uh, as it was happening.
2: And it looks like a couple of uh, couple of the sergeants at arms and security people have uh, one of the members uh, under both armpits and forcing him out. Dan Rather? What's your name, sir? And what is your name, sir? Take your hands off of me. Dan rather. Unless you intend to arrest me, don't, t- don't push me, please. I know you won't, but don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you're plan to arrest me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Walter, as you can see. I don't know what's going on, but this, well, Walter, these are security people apparently around Dan. Walter, obviously getting roughed we tried up. tried to talk to the man, and we got uh, bodily pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. We, uh, I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody belted me in his stomach doing that. What happened is a Georgia delegate, at least he had a Georgia delegate sign on, was... Uh, being hauled out of the hall. We tried to uh, talk to him to see why, who he was, and what the situation was. And at that instant, the security people, uh, well, as you can see, put me on the deck. I, I didn't do very well. I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, Dan. If I may be permitted to say so. Well, mind you, Walter, I'm all right. I, it's uh, it's all in a day's work. Well, he saw the performance, and it didn't look very good from here, I'll tell you that. Uh, thank you, Dan, for staying in there pitching despite every handicap Uh, that they can possibly put in our way from free flow of information at this Democratic National Convention.
1: You know, Heather, one of the things that to me is fascinating about that is Cronkite's statement, it looks like we got a bunch of thugs, of course, breaking with his Mm -hmm. usual neutrality. But but then he kind of hesitates for a minute. And then he says, if I may be permitted to say that, almost as if he realizes that he may have crossed the line and is trying to back up a little.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but you know what, Bill, after that, he says, but it seems like they're doing everything they can to, you know, stifle the press and free yeah. speech here well, at the that's convention, right. and, and it's a it's a tougher line than the thugs line. The thugs line is kind of an insult, but the other one is an evaluation about the suppression of free speech. And and Cronkite was just on that. He made some mistakes. He did a bad interview with Mayor Daly. Maybe we don't have time to talk about that. But but he repeatedly said the mayor is trying to to keep us from from you know suppress freedom of, of the press.
1: You you know what? You're completely correct. Uh that 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 he was making a very uh, strong statement. Thank you. Um I like being corrected on the show, and I think you just (laughs) did a nice job of it. Um, So, so you you know, one of the important things about this convention on the inside, aside from the the, the thuggery that uh, Walter Cronkite talks about, because Mike Wallace also had in some ways an even worse incident, um, which we don't Mm -hmm. have, uh, at least I couldn't find a recording of, um, but a lot of this in terms of Julian Bond, in terms of alternate delegations, a lot of this had to do, number one, with African-American delegates, alternate delegates in southern states. It had to do with Gene McCarthy's supporters and whether or not they could be seated as delegates. And one of the things that your book makes so clear is that in addition to all the violence that was going on, Democrats and Republicans watching really learned a lesson about having open conventions. It was really the last time that there was an open convention after 68, uh, Democratic and Republican parties realized they didn't want to come into the convention hall wondering who their nominee was going to be. And I would argue <laughs> that in some way that opened the door for Jimmy Carter in 1976.
0: You are absolutely right. I will make a slight adjustment or correction there and just say that I think in 72, the Democrats learn from 68 that you know the delegates had said this is not an open convention, we're being poorly treated and they tried to open things up and be more representative and have more women more people of color, more young people and so in 72 you have people who are regular delegates, the guys in suits, complaining like these are the kids from four years ago, now they're inside. I mean Jerry Rubin <laughs> of the Yippies is like inside you got a press pass and maybe Abby Hoffman too and you watch on the news and people have afros and Beads on. And of course, it was uh, tough on the Democratic Party's image. They seemed like they were total radicals. Um, And there's even some people advocating for a gay rights plank. Um, But that's luckily for the the party in the mainstream, like that advocacy for gay rights comes at like maybe four in the morning. So it gets like an inch in the New York Times and, you know, it doesn't get a lot of traction in the media. Um, And then Following that, yeah, clamp down so that by 76, you are absolutely right. This does help clear the way for Carter, who is, you know, presenting himself as a much more moderate Democrat, very different than Eugene McCarthy and and, and even from, from Humphrey.
1: And because by that time, um, the parties had come to rely on primaries uh, to select their nominees by the time they uh, got to the convention, which Carter so masterfully uh, exploited— um, I, w-
0: I want exactly I right. want to go yeah. back to
1: the uh, let's go back to the demonstrators for a minute. I I love uh, the a uh, 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 soundbite I found of Don Rose, big Chicago political organizer, guy I dealt with a lot in Chicago. Rennie Davis was the kind of the leader of the protests um, going on out in the streets. Um, he was an iconic figure. He was a he was a defendant, as I recall in the Chicago Seven. Uh, trial that Judge Julius Hoffman presided over. Um, Don Rose talks about the protesters were up on the north side, primarily, and they were being penned in in Lincoln uh, Park, largely trying to get down toward Grant Park. And Rennie Davis finally said to Don Rose, hey, we need to get right downtown, which is what led, and they wanted to go all the way to the amphitheater, but it was kind of what led to the confrontation you talked about in front of the Conrad Hilton Hotel. Um, And... Here's Don Rose describing what happened when Rennie Davis said to him, we gotta get downtown.
2: As we were walking to it, Rennie said, this is really horrible, it's much worse than I imagined. And I said, yeah, he says, what can we say? And I said to him casually, I was not trying to phrase make, I said, tell them they can't get away with it again cause the whole world is watching.
1: By the way, the noise in the background, I I pulled that from a documentary which had a music track behind Don Rose's voice. But clearly that became the ubiquitous phrase that the demonstrators used. And they were right. The whole world was watching.
0: They're absolutely right. Although the whole world is watching about three hours later. (laughs) So,
2: you know, it's
0: <laughs> all the delays. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it spread around the country by, you know, the, the following days. And then it was global, right? It really was the whole world. And it was a, a black eye uh for for America abroad. And just for, you know, for some context, this is '68. Well, May of 68, there are all these uprising in the streets in Paris. Um, there's all kinds of troubles in 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 Prague. Uh uh, you know, there it's there was the Mexico City Olympics would would come in 68, you know. So there's a lot going around the whole world that people are watching in terms of protest movements, and this just becomes one piece of that bigger sort of puzzle about uh, global unrest, I would say.
1: The um, confrontation in front of the Conrad Hilton uh, uh, was was something that you write about in detail, and it was certainly one of the most awful Uh, events of the entire convention. The protesters had made their way downtown. The Hilton Hotel was the headquarters hotel of the Democratic uh, Party, the DNC, and and so most of the officials were staying there. Uh, Humphrey was staying there. Um, I think uh, Gene McCarthy was there as well, Um, and uh, that's where the Chicago police really drew a tough line, and as you say, Uh, started gassing and beating uh, the protesters. The tear gas wafted in to the lobby of the hotel. You report to us, as others have, that the tear gas actually reached Humphrey's suite in a higher floor of the hotel. Talk a little bit about when you explored that, what your thoughts were about what happened there.
0: Yeah, it was so outrageous. And I mean, of course, there had Mm -hmm. been several days of tear gas. And so it was kind of shocking when people are like, now it's tear gas. Like, no, no, this has been ongoing, right? Um, The tear gas had gotten into the air conditioning system in the hotel. And you also had protesters in the lobby who would like throw stink bombs. It was like the rotten egg gas. Um, And then you had protesters fleeing into the lobby just to escape from being beaten by police uh, on that night, the Battle of Michigan Avenue. And people were vomiting. In the lobby from all the gas and stuff like that. It was really uh, just a horrific scene. And the... Kind of parallel to that, I would say, on the after the convention was over, the police raided uh, Eugene McCarthy's suite and just started beating the kids who were asleep in there who had been volunteers for him and dragged them down to the lobby. And you have a small-scale version of that giant battle on Michigan Avenue that no one got to see. The whole world wasn't watching because there weren't cameras. And the only way they finally stopped the police was by saying, we've called the news media and they're coming now. And I don't know if the news media really were coming now, but the idea of taking images was like, OK, fine, we'll leave. And they they left those, those McCarthy workers alone. So that might seem like a divergence from your question about the Battle of Michigan Avenue, but it points no. to the holistic picture of the constant violence, you know, uh, and how over the top it was and how, you know, the delegates, delegates were standing around in the street while the protesters were being beaten and like alternate delegates. They weren't on the convention site. They were in the hotel. They come out to look. They start being beaten. There's such a crush against the Haymarket Lounge, which is like the bar of the Hilton Hotel. There's a crush of people that's so extreme that the plate glass window just shatters. Everyone in the street falls into the lounge. People in the lounge are literally having cocktails, eating dinner. Police jump through the window and start beating not only the people they've pushed through the window, but people just out the bar having a drink or being hit over the head. So the 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 explosion of of police brutality is is quite extreme.
1: And yet, and yet, once again there was an outpouring of anger and criticism toward the networks for showing no matter how late they got it on the air uh, what was happening, Heather.
0: Yeah, you know the way I, I think about it and how it helps me think about what's going on today is that, you know, one of the criticisms people leveled and they were kind of riffing off of Mayor Daley's critiques is that they said, well, the protesters uh, provoked the violence. You just didn't show it. If you take in better footage and shown the protesters hurling items at the police, shouting profanities, whatever. uh, If you'd shown that provocation, you could have told a better story. You could have edited it better and conveyed the truth of what happened. So the argument was you were biased and so you got the story wrong. Uh, but you could fix that. Now, today, when people attack the media, they often say, oh, it's fake news. You're just lying. You just completely made this thing up. And so it's a much more in some ways devastating critique because it implies such ill will and it implies uh, such cynicism because you if you told the story badly, you could learn and and fix it and be more objective and neutral if that were the case, which I don't think it was. God. But If you're just a liar and you're faking everything, that can't be fixed. So that points to a fundamental shift in attitudes and a kind of uh, extremism and authoritarianism that we're seeing today.
1: Um, We've got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, I want to talk about the way in which Mayor Daley orchestrated much of what happened, not just on the streets of Chicago, but actually in terms of how the convention itself was unfolding, aided – by the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, who was calling in signals of his own. We'll be back in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind.
2: NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Heather Hendershot, um, there are moments that you write about in your book in which we realize that Daily really is in control or tries to be in control of much of what is happening on the podium and around him in the hall there's one really chilling moment um in which abraham ribikoff is up on uh talking criticizing in in very specific terms what's happening on the streets of chicago and lip readers uh believe that they hear daily uh, shouting out to him something uh relatively obscene what was that
0: yeah uh uh, so, yeah, Abrakov says, you know, we wouldn't have these Gestapo taxes in the streets of Chicago if if, uh, if Eugene McCarthy were president. And Daly stands up and shouts out. Uh, well, he said he called him up. Saker. Um, But lip readers were like, no, no, it was it was the F word, right? It was the F bomb. Um, And he also called them an anti-Semitic slur, according to the lip readers. And I think what helps to add to this story is to note that Daly was in such control, as you just described, Bill, that The microphones were at his whim when they were turned on or turned off. So if you were in Wisconsin and you wanted to stand up to complain about something or express anti-Vietnam War sentiment, uh-oh, your microphone's turned off. <laughs> not a coincidence. So when Daly says something explosively, uh, you know, potentially controversial, his microphone just happens to not be on. He just happens to stand up and scream it, right? And it points to that whole control apparatus down to this pettiness about whose microphone was on or whose microphone was off. Another example of that pettiness, each delegation has a phone kind of on a post, you know, to uh, and they are not given their phone numbers to share with each other so that California would love to strategize with New Hampshire about a peace platform for Vietnam, but they can't call each other because they don't know their phone numbers. But Texas knows Illinois' phone number, and Illinois knows Texas' phone number. And finally, delegates have to literally like smuggle in lists of phone numbers to share with each other and make them on mimeograph machines and hide them in their clothes so they're not confiscated by security. They have to do the same thing with like protest signs. If they want to hold up a sign for peace, they have to hide it and you know pull it out of their their pants or their shoes or their pockets or whatever uh, when they want to show it. It's incredible.
1: So here's Mayor Daly pulling all the strings in the convention hall. Um, orchestrating what's happening on the streets. Walter Cronkite, and as well as Huntley and Brinkley, have called attention to this uh, over and over again. And yet there's a moment that we need to play. Uh, it's probably one of the lowest moments in Walter Cronkite's entire career as a journalist. He comes on the air and has an interview with a very special guest. Let's listen.
2: Here in our CBS News anchor booth, man about whom we have spoken a great deal in the last few days. He's had a couple of words about us in the last <laughs> few days, I think. Uh, maybe this is a kiss and make-up session, but it's not really intended quite that way, Mayor Daly. I think we've always been uh, friends from a distance at, at any rate. Mayor Richard Daly of uh, Chicago. Now, How no- is it that you never show on television, Walter, the crowd marching down the street to confront the police?
1: So, uh... Heather, talk about that moment.
0: Wow, you're absolutely right to note this was a career low point for Cronkite. He wasn't known as a strong interviewer anyway, and he he did this interview with Daly after the <clears throat> Battle of Michigan Avenue uh, the next day to try to be fair. They got so many protest telegrams and phone calls during the night that he thought, "Well, my journalistic norms dictate that I have to have on this guy to give the other point of view," um, and he assumed that Daly would kind of shoot himself in the foot rhetorically because he wasn't very articulate and instead he came on with a written statement from his press agent that was just attacking the news, attacking the protesters, full of misinformation about, you know, assassination attempts that were going to happen and this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, uh, the 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 thing that stands out in what you just played is that moment where Cronkite says, "Well, we've always sort of been friends at a distance," and then at the end of the interview, uh, Daily uh, Cronkite sort of been walked all over by Daily, and he hasn't really gotten an, a word edgewise. And at the end, he says, um, "You know, well." Uh, before the unpleasantness happened here in Chicago, me and my team were commenting on the pleasantness and friendliness of the Chicago police. So he's really bending over backwards. And to even call all the tear gassing and beating unfriendliness is, is rather shocking. Um, and Cronkite says, well, I don't think we'll ever agree on all of this, Mayor Daly. And Daly says, well, that doesn't mean we can't be friends. And they shake hands and the interview ends. And I thought this is a great moment for thinking about some of the norms from the past that we are nostalgic about the fairness and balance in the news and so on because compared to a lot of cable news today um this is a moment where people are trying to be friendly (laughs) that and it's totally phony right uh there's um dailies treated too lightly in the name of fairness so it points to a moment where the news failed just by trying to be fair and objective um, because objectively Daly was in the wrong in this situation. Where it served CBS well is that after the convention he wanted to go on the air to defend himself and CBS said you already got 45 minutes where you just walked all over Cronkite and gave your point of view so we've given you the free air time and NBC said yeah I'll come on one of our talk shows and he thought that was a setup because he wasn't very articulate so he had to do his own alternative Kind of underground media campaign, and make his own film and distribute it station by station for people to see. You know his take on what happened as a sort of yeah. uh, counter to the news coverage. Uh,
1: that that uh, film, uh, what trees do they plant? Uh, what uh, trees uh, do they is...
0: plant? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Speaking <laughs> about the uh, the communi- the communists and social, it's available online if people want to look it up yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. Okay, so so Heather. You know, as a journalist, I cringed when I, I saw that because I, I, I believe you can be fair to someone but also be tough-minded. So yeah. if you don't mind, you are, after all, a media studies professor. Uh, I couldn't help but think about Leslie Stahl with our very own Marjorie Taylor Green, who tried to be fair mm-hmm. and somewhat mm-hmm. you know friendly to Marjorie Taylor Green, but refused to press her in the way that I think uh, and look, she's an icon. I, Leslie Stahl has done tremendous work. This was not, yeah. to me, one of her finest moments.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, so many mistakes have been made over the past four six years in trying to show the, the, uh, white nationalist line trying to show the extremist authoritarian line giving you know air, time to people like Richard Spencer giving time to some of the most extreme voices in congress and you know not pushing back and you're really giving oxygen to something that is burning in a in a very dangerous way Um, I I will certainly be missing Judy Woodruff over on PBS NewsHour, who um, (laughs) is just the sort of icon of getting all of this stuff right and very old school. And of course, the networks try to be much more balanced than, say, Fox News or MSNBC, which clearly slant one way or the other. Um, But they do fail when they have uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene on and they don't uh, do the kinds of hard pushing that they should do as responsible journalists.
1: I, I do think that many uh, journalists, and I certainly think on this show, we learned quite a while ago. You talk about it took the uh, media four years to figure out what uh, Trump was all about and trying to be balanced. Mm-hmm. I think we learned a while ago. There's no sense in doing that with a Donald Trump or a Marjorie Taylor Green, and I and I think I and we sometimes run into criticism for it. But but I do think that in many ways the media is awake. The mainstream media is, has woken up about some of that, don't you?
0: Yeah, I'd agree. They're they're definitely more aware. At the same time, they make mistakes in amplifying things. And I think a great example of this is Trump being thrown off of Twitter. He goes to an alternative platform that's not really thriving, that's been about to go under since it started. Um, and so he should be off social media. And yet he says something outrageous in his new venue and it gets repeated. And you're suddenly hearing so- it on Politico or on CBS. Like what's the you know, they're amplifying something that should not be amplified.
1: Heather, you wouldn't complain about the fact that the cable news networks Uh, focused on Donald Trump's airplane in West Palm taking off, flying to New York, landing at the airport. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It was outrageous. I mean, to her credit, you know, Rachel Maddow recently just there were some comments from Trump and she was like, I'm just not going to run those comments. You know, it's it's about about his uh, conviction. You know, she's just like, I'm not going to run them because it's the same stuff we always hear. But, yeah, they're definitely still making mistakes.
1: Heather Hendershot, we are completely out of time. It's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you about your new book, When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarization of America. It's a really terrific book, and uh, I'd encourage people to find it at your independent bookstore uh, if you possibly can. So, Heather, thanks a lot. Hey, you know, sometime, come back, and let's talk about the media in general as news develops. Would you do that at some point?
0: I would be delighted to come back. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. It was great to talk to you.
1: All right. Thanks a lot. We're out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Uh, We'll be back with another show soon. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye-bye.